Welcome to Film in the Wilderness, a six-week limited podcast series during Lent 2021, brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm Jed Deering. And with us today, we have our special guest, the Reverend Laura Everly, a vocational deacon in the Diocese of California. And Laura, just wanted to give you a moment to introduce yourself to our audience and kind of what you're up to in the world and anything you might say about how film or art kind of helps you connect to your own sense of calling or relationship with God. Thanks, Jed. Uh, really glad to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Laura. I use she and her pronouns, and I live in Oakland, California. Um, and I'm a, I'm a vocational deacon in the Episcopal Church, and I'm a community organizer. So a lot of my work has been around tenant organizing and housing rights. Um, and I also consult as an anti-racism, diversity and equity consultant for organizations. Um, so this movie brought a lot of those themes home for me. Um, and I think broadly about art and movies, like if we look at our gospel, it's a whole series of stories, right? That's, that's a way that people learn and a way that we share message and meaning making with each other. Um, and I think art has the potential to lift up all sides of unseen perspectives of an issue or a story. Um, and I really appreciate the ways that film lets us do that in conversation. Then the movie that we are going to be covering together today in conversation is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco was released in 2019. And it follows the story of two friends, Jimmy and Montgomery, who are living in the Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood in San Francisco, uh, historically more of an African-American neighborhood, and one, as the movie hits on, that has been a site of a lot of toxic dumping <laughs> and a neighborhood that has been exploited in many ways over its time. Uh, they make regular trips back into the city to visit the Fillmore neighborhood, wherein uh, Jimmy had, goes back and visits his childhood home that he grew up in with his father, uh, a beautiful Victorian home uh, with a witch's hat. And he goes back and has a great fond affection and connection for this place, um, sharing that his grandfather had built it in the 1940s. Uh, and he takes the time to paint it because he feels the current owners are not caring for it in the right way, uh, to upkeep the gardens, to watch out for it. And through kind of a, a number of circumstances, uh, Jimmy and Mont end up uh, squatting in the home as it ends up empty and vacant. And they kind of take the home over, making it their own. Uh, and along the way, uh, unsuccessfully attempt to find a way to be able to own the home and to be able to, to have it as theirs. And along the way, we kind of get the story of these two men and their friendship, uh, their working lives, the connection to their family, their neighborhoods, the characters in them. And we're especially seeing those through the eyes of Montgomery, Jimmy's best friend, who is a playwright and is consistently observing and seeing the world. Um, Jimmy has a blind grandfather played by Danny Glover, uh, who he sees and watches out into the world for and into television shows and stories and recounts and retells them. And in the same way, you see him looking and perceiving the world around him and offering a different perspective along the way. So it's their, the story of their friendship, the connection to Jimmy's home, uh, and that pursuit and hope and longing for a home to call your own. 
Uh, are there other things that you might pitch in either Carl or Laura just into kind of a basic summary or overview of this film? I think you just summarized everything I was going to say about the movie, Chad. So short podcast today. No, um, uh, I think I think you you got it. That was beautiful. Great summary. Laura, did he leave anything out? I think only that it's also really a story of place. Like it's very much a story of San Francisco at the same time that it's a story about these two men and their friendship, right? So you have all of these spliced in vignettes of different characters from around the city and different dynamics at play in the housing markets, obviously. Um, and it's a, it's a story that wouldn't make sense, I think, set in a lot of other places. Like, it's very much a story of this city and this time that it's in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Laura, the, the gospel that we're putting the movie into conversation with today uh, comes from the Gospel of John uh, as we get ready for the third week of Lent. And so I was hoping you might be able to read that gospel for us. Absolutely. This is the Gospel of the Lord according to John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle, he also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Lovely. Um, so, Jed, I will ask you the same question I asked last week. Since you were, you really are the um, Svengali of this podcast and were the person who set all the movies or matched them to the different readings, what about that reading placed The Last Black Man in San Francisco in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I think right off the bat on a surface level, it came to mind simply from the line, zeal for your father's house will consume me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the gospel, we have a Jesus and you see the great concern that he has for his father's house, for what had been lost, for how it had been closed down to people. There have been ways that it was being exploited uh, and he's trying to return it and to open it up and to, um, to address the issues that are there, and especially in the context of the Passover of the Jews, which is a story of liberation. And so you have this zeal, this passion for the house in the context of liberation and the connections that that makes to the last Black man in San Francisco, where we see uh, Jimmy and his passion for his childhood home, passion for the home that he shares, you know, his grandfather had built, uh, this place that also he had a deep connection to from childhood. And we think about in our gospel story uh, that we hear in Luke, how, you know, Jesus was found at the temple, gone missing from his parents, and he had stayed behind, and he, you know, builds this strong connection with the temple in childhood, and for, I think for so many of us, we 
probably have those houses that are more than that, but are really the homes that we remember from our past that we have that deep connection with. Um, so this, this passage, just surfing, surfacing the idea of what does it mean to have a home? What does it mean to have a passion for that kind of place, a zeal? Um, you know, where does that lead us uh, in how we think about fighting for justice? Uh, the book that I was reading at the time that I was working on this project was a book that came from uh, over um, from the Anglican Church uh, in the UK called uh, Coming Home, A Theology of Housing. And there's a, a quote in there from one of the bishops over in the UK that says, the demands of justice include opposing the way in which houses have become a key area for financial investment. Mm. And so as I was reading that in this gospel and thinking about films and just thinking about the way Jesus was seeking to clear out the way that the temple had become a marketplace <laughs> and those connections that that has. So there, there are a lot of ways. Um, I'll stop there now. That was the initial uh, thrust for that connection. Yeah, I can see it. So much of um, what you said rings true. I think there are other things going on in this film, though, and I'll, I'll just name them now, maybe just so that we will remember to come back to them later. Um, I feel like the, this film is about storytelling, kind of in the way, Laura, you were talking about it, you know, at the beginning, except what's so interesting to me is that many of the stories are false that mm. people are telling or telling themselves, you know. So um, Monty and Jimmy, there are five young men who hang out in front of their house and these guys are like always fronting, you know, they're always pretending to be tougher than they are. They're always kind of um, egging each other on in these displays of like masculine toughness. Um, at a certain point, Jimmy and Monty have one of them over to this beautiful Victorian house and they go for a schwitz. So they're like sitting in this hot tub. It's just really lovely. And um, it's it's just clear that this person is not like the the tough guy on the street who he pretends to be when he's with his four other friends, but is instead a fairly sweet soul, fairly gentle soul. Um, so, and, and I was, I was thinking this morning um, that the thing about the character of Monty and the story being told through his perspective is that he seems to have a very gentle and generous understanding of other people while also understanding that what they are doing most of the time is is dr dramatizing themselves. And he can see through that. Like, he, he understands what they're doing, and it in no way makes him treat them with contempt or as if they're not... Um, dishonest because in a way they're they're not dishonest they're just acting you know <laughs> and he appreciates acting um in this really fundamental way so i'm just throwing that out there that that all the themes of housing and justice and finances and wealth are in this movie but so is this idea that most of us are being performative most of the time and that that is not necessarily something to, that we should be criticized for maybe it's something gracious this is so interesting to me that you're naming these as potentially false stories or like performative dramatizations. Um, and I wonder, because I read it really differently. Um, 
I read it as being about that, like more than one thing can be true at the same time, right? Kofi, to me, feels like both this really tender guy who can hang out with his besties in Schwitz and has like gotten himself in lots of trouble and caused real pain and harm to other people by being this smack talking bravado uh, mean guy out on the street corner. Um, and I think at the at this you know culminating performance of Mons Clay that also becomes Kofi's wake in this really tender way. Yeah. What Jimmy says about Kofi is people aren't one thing. Yeah, right? that's right. After having You're seen right. this performance where Mont is on stage with literally makeup split down the middle of his face and a costume split down the middle where he plays two people simultaneously by rotating his face. Do you, do you think that people sometimes pretend to be only one thing? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and well, this is like one of the quotes from the street preacher at the very beginning, right? He says, um, remember your truth in a city of facades. And we, oh, and we yeah. one of our first meetings with Jimmy is he's painting the facade of this house that he has this story about that you later learn he knows isn't true, but doesn't even let himself know isn't true. Yeah, so there's very much this conversation about surfaces and what do we show in what places. Thank you. Feel, sorry, Judd. Oh, no, I, I feel like, too, and like, what a, what a theme for Lent, right? Of this idea, actually, of like, what does it mean to have this, this season or this moment or this time to uh, where we're kind, kind of be jarred back to the truth of, of ourselves, of our relationship with others, like uh, with God and like, um, yeah, that it's kind of, we have this moment or this season because we, it feels like sometimes we need to be like, yeah, I think shaken out of uh, the lives maybe that we've told of our, told ourselves or reassess like the desires that we have that seem to be driving us that can cause us to perhaps to lie to ourselves to keep something going. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking a little bit about how Montgomery in this role uh, kind of ex continues to like expose how their people are performing or acting or lying to themselves, like kind of consistently in different ways. And how often too, we, we see that in the gospels with Jesus and his interactions with people when they come often with a lot of bravado to uh, accusing the woman of adultery, right? trying to perform this act or coming, attempting to expose him. Um, and he kind of tries to cut actually to the heart of who we are and why, why are we acting in this way? And th yeah, there seem to be a lot of themes here that you could plumb on this front. I, I want to name particularly the scene. So there's a scene where Jimmy is waiting for a bus and this completely naked white man <laughs> walks up we're, wearing a hat, so not completely naked, um, but walks up and sits down next to him, an older an older man. And then this um, like beer trolley goes by, you know, one of those pedal trolleys for people to get drunk on. And they notice this man and they start shouting at him. And he looks at them in like bewilderment, like as as if he has no idea that he's naked. And then he says something like, "The city," you know, <laughs> like look at all these weirdos. And and for a while, I was like, "Is that is that scene there for any other reason except humor?" Um, but this conversation is helping me realize maybe part of what the film is saying about those facades is that we often uh, don't know that we're wearing them. Or we don't, or we don't know that we're walking around naked. Or 
I mean, because that was my question. It's like, does this guy actually know he's naked? I mean, he brings a towel Maybe. to lie down on the bus seat. So yeah. that is true. Okay, you're right. You're right. <laughs> he does know he's naked. <laughs> So, so what what is he there for? I've I've been trying to figure this out since watching the movie last night. That's really interesting. There's this constant thread throughout of this city, right? People keep yeah. saying it over yeah. and over. And there's another conversation on a muni bus about two it's two white girls saying how much they hate it here, and Jimmy looks over at them and is like, "Yeah, but do you do you love it? Right? And you're not allowed right. to hate the city unless you love it." And it seems to be this thread of a conversation about ownership, right? Who gets to define and who gets to own this weird, weird place that is San Francisco. And that's always yeah. contested in every little vignette throughout. That's... And I, I think for me too, I was, I'm struck in that scene by the fact that there, uh, San Francisco for so long too has been thought of as a place wherein like weirdos are welcome. Mm-hmm. or can come and there will be a gentle welcome here for you as the song says you know and but in my uh encounter serving uh as a chaplain on the streets when i was doing my pastoral education uh there in san francisco i w- would encounter so many people who would be considered weird or on the edge or on the margins in one way or another uh who would say the similar refrain to me again and again often it was somebody who'd come from the midwest who said I came here to the city thinking that I would find others like me or welcome or I could truly be myself. And instead, I found a city where I wasn't wanted, where there isn't community and people are concerned for themselves. Mm. And like that there is a story about San Francisco in a way that uh, carries on. And in a way, it's maybe not true in, in the same way that it used to be. You know, our stories are never fully true <laughs> that are told about a place or in general. But um, for me, there was a sense of that for both Jimmy and our nudist, like that both of them were part of a past of San Francisco that was maybe being passed by. Replaced by beer trolleys, maybe. Well, and I think it's worth asking if that past ever existed as well. Right. That San yeah. Francisco, I think like any major city in the U.S., yeah. has always been predicated on some people being welcome and others not, as they're mm-hmm. useful to particular industry, to particular labor trends. Right. Jimmy's house is in the Fillmore, which they reference briefly in the movie, used to be Japantown, right, before right. Japanese internment, when tens of thousands of Japanese Americans were arrested and taken to concentration camps and their property literally abandoned as their ownership of it was outlawed Um, and that was the catalyst for the Fillmore becoming the densest African-American neighborhood in San Francisco which was then the subject of several phases of redevelopment uh, wherein the city then claimed eminent domain and kicked people out of that housing and San Francisco is now less than three percent African-American. So I think there's never there's never been a time in this city's history when people weren't being simultaneously welcomed and other groups of people being shunned and shut out. Jimmy, uh, you know, Jimmy, it feels like he starts to be feel alien in his own city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he even mentions having this disconnect because his, you know, his father, he's really separated from his mother. He doesn't know where she is. His aunt lives somewhere out far beyond the BART line. Mm-hmm. And he starting to have a real lack of connection 
but that that you mentioned the city being a character lore and it's the house is certainly a character in this movie as well and he has that seemingly like deep connection with this house and that house in this place is one of his last last spaces or places of connection in a city that's kind of passed him by a city that's passed by the black community especially here in, in Fillmore and this is like his one last place and so when Mont ultimately you know wakes him up again to the truth that this house isn't part of his family's heritage that his grandfather did not build it you know all of a sudden you you end up with him adrift right uh, actually like kind of mm -hmm. out at sea yeah um, without that last connection point to the city and you kind of you kind of track that that journey of his throughout the movie that um part of the skill or artistry of the film i think comes from the fact that it's all i would say that that although jimmy's the protagonist monty's it's monty's gaze it's his understanding um and the and the movie the camera work the directing i think is all mostly from monty's perspective um sometimes in incredibly beautiful ways like there's a a moment where um kofi and his his friends these these five young men who hang out on the street are just really talking trash and we don't hear them instead we hear jody mitchell playing over like uh um you know slowed down images of them and their trash talking and you get this kind of feeling of of their lost and gentle souls getting kin behind this facade um but Laura, you pointing out that the the right after we hear the street preacher, oh, he's not really a preacher; he's a street politician, orator, something. He's not he's not talking about Jesus. He's like laying down some facts about what's happening in the community. Um, right after we hear him, we see Jimmy painting the facade, but we also see Monty drawing that build that house, that facade, and he's drawing Jimmy painting it. As if Jimmy, you know, from Monty's perspective, Jimmy and the house are one and kind of there, there's very little point in like doing, drawing them separately. Do we ever see a Monty drawing of Jimmy anywhere in the movie? He definitely draws Kofi and the others and he draws other people he meets. I don't remember that. I, don't I, w I wonder if they're not saying that Monty only draws him in, in terms of the house. Interesting. Which is in itself an act, of, an act of trespass, right? Like he breaks into this place to paint the facade yes. and take care of the garden. Yes. But yeah, Jen, yeah. I want to go back to your point too about the city sort of passing Jimmy by and noting how many times in Jimmy's story is a story of getting kicked out of places. Right, so they get kicked out of the house when he's quite young. He gets kicked out of group homes or foster care. He's kicked out. They talk about a warehouse that he and his dad lived in that they get kicked out of at some point. He got kicked out of this car that he lived in for a little while. We don't get the full story about why this car now belongs to someone else. But he's just sort of constantly spurred from place to place to place. And when I was first holding this movie up against the gospel passage that you chose to go with it, that's what I was thinking about was this kicking people out of places um, and the inversion that happens in the gospel. So, you know, it's been Herod's project to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And Herod, you know, when Jesus is first born with the murder of the innocents causing 
Jesus's family to leave the place that they understand as home and then this whole journey to get back to it. Um, and then there's this inversion that happens where Jesus kicks everybody out of the temple for having made this sacred space a marketplace. Um, and I was just, I was intrigued by that sort of anti-parallel. And I've been reading um, Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And she has this, can I read this quick passage from it? Oh yeah. So she's talking about the uses of creative anger. She's talking about what to do with anger as a black woman um, and talks about James Baldwin's uh, conundrum about how to not let your anger eat you alive as a black person in America and then Audre Lorde's understanding of the creative uses of anger. Uh, and this is where she goes with it, the conclusion of the chapter. She writes, I serve a God who experienced and expressed anger one of the most meaningful passages of scripture for me is found in the New Testament, where Jesus leads a one-man protest inside the temple walls. Jesus shouts at the corrupt temple officials, overturns furniture, sets animals free, blocks the doorways with his body, and carries a weapon, a whip, through the place. Jesus throws folks out of the building, and in so doing, creates space for the most marginalized to come in, the poor, the wounded, the children. I imagine the next day's newspaper is called Jesus's Anger Destructive, but I think those without power would have said that his anger led to freedom, the freedom of belonging, the freedom of healing, and the freedom of participating as full members in God's house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of the freedom of participating as full members in God's house. And like uh, thinking about that connection to what it means to be able to have home as well, and to be able to be someone who offers hospitality to be able to someone who can open up a place to others the way that, uh, you know, Jimmy and Mont end up opening up their home, you know, whether it's inviting Kofi in or whether it's making it a place for the, the play and to gather community, you know, it, it opens you up to this chance to like participate in love and giving and sharing with others. And um, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Would you say there's a lot of anger in the, in the movie? Yeah, I think it gets expressed in different places in different ways. There's a lot of people yelling get out at each other at different points in time. Yeah, there's a the woman who owns a house of throwing vegetables at Jimmy while he tries to paint it. His dad is certainly an angry person, I would say. I think there's a lot of sublimated rage. Like there's every interaction they have with this real estate schmuck who undercuts mm -hmm. them, right? There, and there are a couple of instances of the threat of state violence that doesn't get used. So by the white woman who owns the house and then the real estate agent both say, I don't want to call the cops. Or I think the woman who owns the house threatens and her husband is like, we're not calling the cops. Right. But there's this like backed up threat of state violence that allows white people to be benevolent throughout. Yeah. And I certainly felt that the film is indicating like deep seething anger underneath all of that, that that is not allowed to be expressed and then when Jimmy and Mont first get in the house when they first break in they they do all this screaming there's all this really loud emotive and it's like joy and it's anger and it's a release of all of this stuff that feels like it's been pent up for so long there's also um at the end of the movie when They've lost a house and it's on sale. Monty goes into it 
kind of just as part of um, an open house. And he hides in this hidden room and then jumps out and shuts which I love. Um, because there, I, I feel like that, that little secret room in the house is kind of what is behind the facade. You know, it is like the place within the house that has no facade at all, really. Um, so it, it feels like in that scene, Monty is jumping out from the place behind the facade to bring kind of humorous, you know, shock to the people there. But I, I don't know if you could say it was like a, a completely kind act. So, But I want it to be because I think Monty is a saint. Like he is my favorite character probably in any movie I've seen in the last five to ten years. And their friendship is one of the greatest movie friendships I've ever encountered without a doubt. It is so touching and beautiful. Um, and they're and and also very funny. Like there's a scene where they're talking in the house, and uh, Jimmy is uh, beating something in a bowl, like eggs or something. And they look up through the window, and they see this white couple in the house next door. And the woman is doing exactly the same thing. And then they just kind of give each other this look, like, okay, we now we understand we're playing this kind of domestic game here, um, but we're we're both in it. Neither one of us is going to turn away from this domestic game. Yeah, there's just such a tenderness and a gentleness between them throughout. Uh, and a, just a, such a deep, like, support of each other, too. And mutuality. Like, even as they get into the house, you know, and he's like, well, what Jimmy says to Ma, you know, well, whatever room you would like. Like, this home, my home is as much yours. Right? And, um, and that that kind of give and take that they have so consistently. And Maki, Ma, Monty picks a dining room, which I also love. It's like, <laughs> he's not really interested in a private place for himself, you know? Like, Jimmy lives with him. One question I had, like, they live in at Monty's grandpa's house, and they live in this, like, seeming, like, workroom, storage room. Um, the house didn't seem that small. I had no real understanding of why they chose that as their space, but I had a feeling maybe it was chosen. It didn't feel necessitated by the size of the house. Yeah, I wondered about that too. I kept looking at sort of the outside framings of the house and being like, it's two stories. Why do we live only on the first floor in the film? Yeah. But I just assume that it's Mont's grandfather's place or Mont's father's place. And that was what was allocated. I don't know. I don't know that they squared it. I think they wanted to live in close proximity to each other. I mean, I really, I think it was just like, we want to be in the same room. Yeah, or or it seemed like there was still some slight um say ambivalence, trying to find the right word, but uh where Mont's grandfather wasn't entirely welcoming of Jimmy. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna clear the extra space in the room upstairs. You know, Mont has this room downstairs and I'll clear some room elsewhere for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if you're here, you can share this space. Mm -hmm. You know, I also, I also thought you know, maybe there's, you know, others living at the house who are living upstairs as well. And, you know, that it is a necessitated room, but. It could be. Yeah. I like my reading better, though. I just like the fact that they like each other right. so much, yeah. you know, that they are so kind of uh, interwoven in each other's lives. And, you know, they're not lovers. Like, there's not, 
there's no like inkling of like sexual tension between them. They're just purely like deeply loving friends, and it's it was beautiful to see on screen. You don't get many images of like really good male friendship in movies. Yeah, I love that, and it's a little queer in that way, right? Like they're not we don't yeah. we don't get the implication that they're sexually involved, but they're intimate partners, right? That are right. deeply involved in each other's lives, and while others lob accusations of homosexuality at them and being overly feminine and having lace curtains in their fancy new place or whatever um they never answer to any of that directly which i love sort of let it be what it is yeah so let's talk a little bit about um the the really the the climax of the movie is that monty finds out that jimmy has been telling the story about his grandfather building this house. And so he decides to stage a play, which you mentioned, Laura, which is like very cathartic, almost uh, less of a drama and more of a wake or a religious ritual in some way. Um, It's funny because you see Monty laboring away on this play and then like the play itself doesn't actually have much scripting to it. But I think, I think there we're not shown the entire play. Um, uh, but what what did you think of that? What is what is Monty's objective? Why would he choose to let his friend know that he knows the secret in such a public and dramatic way? So I wonder if it was intentional. Oh, I I went back and forth watching on whether this was part of the script or whether Monty got carried away with the emotion of the moment and holding on to this knowledge. What do you think? Yeah, it, you know, he segues into it, right? So there is a sense where like, okay, was it, was that a planned segue or not? Um, you know, was it because Jimmy got up and spoke there that all of a sudden he decides, okay, because he responds pretty directly after Jimmy speaks, I believe. I think Jimmy is the last person to share about Kofi. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And so then, you know, it's a pretty direct transition. So I think I think that read that it's improvised or response could definitely be there. I hadn't considered that before, though. I thought it was that that he had found his through line somehow through Jimmy's story. I thought so. My read on it was um, that Monty's way of understanding the world, I I said it before, is that people are performative most of the time and the world surrounding him is performative. And because he is kind of this this strange um, character, you know, has a strange personality that sets him outside of normal human Congress, he um, understands the performative nature and if he is going to actually articulate something he thinks he needs to do it performatively because he, he has seen passive facade to, to what people are doing most of the time. And there is, um, there's like one small detail I've been really thinking about um, because in that scene, so the, the play starts with Monty, as you said, Laura, playing two characters, like flipping back and forth with like different clothes on one half of his body and and on another so doing this kind of dialogue which he's doing both parts of and then at a certain point this figure of death wearing this kind of rictus grin of like white teeth on a painted black face comes up 
and to shoot one of the characters Monty is playing, Kofi. Um, and I didn't realize in that moment that it was Jimmy, but then later in the play, when they when Monty is asking people what they thought about Kofi, I thought I saw a line of white teeth makeup along Jimmy's jaw. Did you guys see that? I thought he was a character of death, and like some of that makeup had been left on, and like the like it was just a brilliant piece of like costume design and makeup to me, you know, to say he's carrying a lot of death around inside of him. He can't let it go. Like it's there, and Monty sees it. Monty knows it. Wow, that's a keen eye. I did not see that, and I didn't know who was playing death either. Does that make sense? I also keep calling him Monty. I think I should be calling him Mont. That's what you guys heard, right? Yeah. I didn't quite pick that up. Okay, sorry about that. I'll try and fix it. Yeah. yeah I, I wonder if, you know, even in connecting a little bit to the gospel where we have, you know, Jesus using this dramatic demonstration, having this dramatic protest, like really having to like um, shake things up in order to attempt to get people to address the truth of what is happening in front of them. If that if that isn't somewhat what Monty was doing there to try to shake, if Monty didn't think for Jimmy to come out of this reality that he's created and built for himself to shake him loose of this all-consuming desire that's built upon or now been supported by this lie that he's told to himself and others, um, you know, if he if he didn't need that, and I think what I what I like about Jimmy is his response and how he goes actually searching to see is that the truth and he does respond to it he did have a tender heart where in our gospel lesson you have the um you know you have the authorities there who say to him well what sign can you show us for doing this you know they like deflect what jesus was up to instead of actually addressing the challenge he was making right like well you know, we're just following procedure here, you know, well, we're, you know, it's that we're not actually willing to face, like, what is this protest? What is this demonstration revealing in the world? What truth does it bring into the surface? We want to, we want to get to why this person shouldn't inhabit this house. We want to get to why you shouldn't have cleared out all the money changers. Um, and, and I think we actually are getting a story of transformation in with Mont and Jimmy from from Mont's act but yeah I think maybe that goes to the performative nature of it too right because Mont tries to tell Jimmy on the porch earlier when it's just the two of them and Jimmy's not ready to hear Mm. it and he does it and so he ends up doing it in the context of the play which is performative but also an act of meaning making right he does it in the context of naming Jimmy he says to Jimmy right you're you're also not one thing you're a carpenter, a son, a friend, and he goes into all these affirmative identities before telling him, and that would be true with or without this house, with or without this piece of this story that you are holding on to. Um, Yeah. And I wonder what that, I wonder what that connects to with the gospel passage as well, um, of the meaning making within sacred space, right? that the the folks who are the folks who are there are doing like sort of status quo things right like the money changers are not perceived as outside of the norm in that space mm-hmm. right. um and so jesus is the one who's asked to credential himself right like what do you like the burden of proof falls to him 
right? As trying to upset something that's an accepted way of going about doing business right now. Uh, and so he has to like, for anyone to be transformed in that moment also provides this sort of scaffolding, right? Of meaning making saying, well, this is not just about the zeal for my father's house and this temple, but it's part of this much bigger narrative of my identity and who I am and the temple that will be raised yeah. after three days. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I had a feeling throughout the film that the house really should be Jimmy's. Did you have that feeling too? Like like if we were, as you were saying, Laura, you know, we were to, we have so normalized this idea that ownership is about like who has purchased something. <laughs> <laughs> but but Jimmy is obviously clearly the owner. Like he is the person who loves this house. Like his identity is wrapped up in it. And um and so like the money changers in the temple, maybe one of the reasons that so upsets Jesus is that it, it just normalizes this idea that belonging can be about buying and selling rather than about love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that narrative is so entrenched and so hard to shift. So, like part of the organizing that I'm doing right now, I'm part of a tenants union, and I'm on rent strike um, with about a dozen other households who all rent from our same landlord, because our landlord has been trying to kick people out who lost their jobs during the pandemic. Um, so this has led us into really deep community and organizing with hundreds and hundreds of tenants all around the Bay Area who are at risk of losing their homes and are trying to get organized. And it feels really simple to us to say housing is a human right, right, gets sort of passed off as a a glib phrase. Um, Mm -hmm. But when we start being in conversation with more people about what it takes to survive and what it takes to survive here in this crazy, crazy rental market, and in conversation with more indigenous people, right, about what do we really mean by ownership of land and what it's for. Um, of course, land and housing and space are for human thriving. Like what else would they be for? The, the apartments that we rent are for people to live in. Their purpose is not for some investor to make money hand over fist. And you say that in the court of public opinion, and you're just labeled as like totally wackadoodle, crazy bonkers. Right. You know, and I told my parents that I'm not paying rent right now. They just, it's so far outside the scope of what's reasonable. <laughs> and everybody's first reaction is like, well, what about your, you know, your landlord has mortgages. What about, what if they risk losing the buildings? What if they, everybody's concern instantly goes to how does this play within the rules we currently have of the market? Yeah. And it's so hard for people to latch on to this broader vision of like, well, wait, what are we, what are we doing here? What is this for? What is the sacred purpose of a place to live? It goes to what you were saying at the beginning, Judd, about housing and investments, you know, that book you're reading. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To see like, how do we, yeah. How do we start to see them as uh, as it, housing as a, just a, a basic demand of justice <laughs> instead of as yeah as as the best opportunity for investment out there? Um, and yeah, and those are two two really incredibly different ways to look at things. And you know, you think about in our story that we pick up here in Last Black Man in San Francisco. You know, the 
Jimmy and Mon are able to move into the home because it's empty because of a dispute over the estate. And so, you know, they have this opportunity to occupy this house in that this kind of middle ground, this middle space. But, um, you know, how many homes, you know, uh, Laura's done work with the group Moms for Housing in Oakland uh, that I was able to be part of a couple courtroom sit-ins and protests with uh, back a couple of years ago. But, you know, that sought to occupy homes that investors from around the country have bought up in the Bay Area and letting just sit empty <laughs> while they wait on neighborhoods to improve to the point where they can get a greater return on their investment. And the amount of empty homes that sit in neighborhoods, and this was a, uh, you know, a big story in Franklinton on the lower west side of Columbus, where I lived before this, but how many homes were owned by people outside of the community, uninhabited, just being held until they could get a great return while people are going homeless daily, looking and fighting and scratching to find, try to find a home in which they can afford with, uh, you know, a working class job. And I think it's something I appreciate with Last Black Man in San Francisco too, is showing, you know, uh, was showing Mont working at the fish market, <laughs> showing Jimmy working as a home health aide, or, uh, and, you know, just the way that uh, the people in our community that are working that make our lives go round uh, when they no longer can afford to live and to own homes in those communities, you know, what is, you know, without making it a big deal in the movie, uh, just highlighting that it was actually impossible um, for them to own in the communities where they lived and worked. And uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot there that's resonant and a lot there that's there, where there's a call for the church right now in terms of working for justice. Seems like a a great final thought, but Laura, do you have anything else you want to add before we conclude? No, I think that's uh, I think this is a really rich conversation. Um, and I'm I'm appreciating all the different lenses on it, and the, I'm going to need to go back and rewatch the film now, having heard you guys' different bits of it that I missed. Um, but I do think that there's just such, I think maybe a final note from me um, is around this gospel passage often getting interpreted as being mostly about righteous anger, right? And what righteous anger is for. Um, and I'm appreciating this reframe of it also being about vision and the insistence on what is sacred not being commodified and not being turned into um, a way of making money, even when that's the accepted norms. Okay, so uh, before we end, we have a typical question that we ask, which is, would you take this film with you into the wilderness? So if, like an Irish saint, your wilderness was the sea, and like Jimmy, you were heading out into it um, in a rowboat at the end of the movie with a two eye with a fish with two eyes on the same side of its face, which at one point jumps into the boat with Monty in a really kind of shocking moment. If you were doing all of that, would you take this film with you? I I think I would take this with me as a as a film for the wilderness. I think uh, I think because of the tender friendship between the two men. I think because it ultimately, I think, is a hopeful movie, um, and it finds a lot of power in art, um, which I think that's a great reminder while being in the wilderness that you can still you can still create art, you can still find hope, and there's there's power in that place. 
Yeah, I think oh, you I think of wilderness as a place that uh, strips away all the unnecessary things to make us grapple with identity and who we are. This movie feels like it does that. You know, it's very spare. It has all of these very long, slow, dramatic pauses, and it doesn't feel like it has a lot extra in there. Um, I think it does a lot of that work to sort of get down to bare bones and say, who are we really underneath all of this? I I would take it with me just because I want to spend as much time with Monty as I possibly can. I don't think I got enough of him. Um, he's he's become my hero and my spiritual teacher, and I need to sit at his feet for as long as possible. <laughs> All right, dear listeners, thank you for listening to Films in the Wilderness. Our theme music is provided by the great Brianna Kelly. We are so grateful for the support of the Diocese of Southern Ohio, and especially for the work and support of Emma Steinmetz, Christopher Richardson, and Jason Oden. And Laura Eberly, we are so grateful for you for joining us today. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, wonderful. All right, we'll see you all later. Thank you so much. <laughs>